millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to this week's Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, a bit of a treat for you today. Dennis Minhan has just retired as one of the longest-serving press photographers in the country, having spent 47 years employed by the Examiner. Initially, of course, as it was the Cork Examiner and subsequently the Irish Examiner. It's fair to say that Dennis is a bit of a legend in the business. He's also a great talker, which we'll come to in a minute. But his career spanned some huge events in Irish and international history, at which he was in attendance, trying always for the perfect shot. One estimate in the newspaper has it that Dennis took over half a million photographs in the course of his career. So what was it like being the man with the camera and what stories lurked behind some of those award-winning and sometimes iconic photographs? Dennis, you're very welcome. Thanks, Mick. Thank you very much. You made it to the finish line intact anyway, Dennis. (laughs) I did indeed. It went so quick for many years, my goodness, I didn't even notice. Didn't yeah, even notice at all. Always the way. Tell me, we'll start with your background. You're from West Cork. Yeah, from Skibbereen. I was, yeah, yeah, grew up in Brit Street and Skibbereen. And where did you develop the interest in photography? Through, I guess, really because of my father, my father Michael. My father Michael was, uh, became a photographer. He wasn't initially when he was, when he was uh, younger, having grown up outside Skibbereen in a place called Connemore Church Cross in Skibbereen. He ended up coming to Cork. He was in the army for a short while and then he ended up milking cows on Model Farm Road, strangely enough. And uh, after that, he became a fisherman. He got injured while he was fishing in that he fell between the pier and the um, trawler at Kinsale and uh, so did some serious injury to his back and he spent three years recovering from that. And somebody had the bright idea who was visiting him and they brought in a set of paintbrushes and uh, started him off in painting, drawing, sketching, doing watercolours. And it passed the time for him, I suppose, when he was in the hospital. He probably wasn't in for the three years in in total, but he was in and out. And in general, it was took him three years to recuperate, developed a watercolour idea, started painting, sketching, and uh, I suppose when he went home, that transformed itself from the into photography. So he went from drawing and painting to photography. It developed his eye, I suppose, for it. And uh, he started doing wedding photographs and communions and confirmations and all local events, and then ended up getting a job with the Cork Examiner. And that's how I, I grew up. Uh, we all grew up in a newspaper house really we also had a small shop so we had a news agents and Brit Street and Skibbereen so I was born into it it was in the blood as they say oh great so so your dad worked for the examiner as well he did um yeah and was there any formal training or anything in those days Dennis or how did you get the start as we call it there was no training make no I mean people nowadays go to college I suppose and study more often than not but no there was no training no I just uh Used to keep in, just to go in every now and again into the dark room. We had a dark room set up in our house because uh, we were so far away from Cork that he had to develop the photographs 
developed the films and print the photographs in Skibbereen. So I used to go in when I was a youngster and watch him, watch him developing the films and then doing the prints. And uh, I suppose slowly he left me try it out and uh, got used to it and uh, it went from there, went from there. Do you recall your first bit of work professionally as a photographer? My goodness, I probably would have to say I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Normally in, in, in anything like these, there's, there's something, if not the very first from the very early days that always sticks, but there's nothing that jumps out. I suppose I was doing, say, when I was in school, I used to write stories as well for the Examiner and the Echo. Is that, uh, I covered local events maybe annual general meetings, the election of councillors, possibly sporting events, anything that was kind of happening in the Skibreen area. And I would, uh, in those days it was called lineage, so I would get so much, I would get a penny a line for every line that was published. And then you would get three pence a line for the headline. And then, of course, you'd hope that the headline went across two or three or four columns, so you you could multiply that by the number of columns. <laughs> And that's what I was doing when I was in school, just just uh, for a bit of fun, really. But it developed, it developed into uh, a way that I continued to do it. And then in those days, there was a reverse line number in the examiner in Cork, so you would ring, ring the number, reverse, ring the reverse number, and I had my my story written out, and call out, read it out, and uh, the girls in the office, Sandra or whoever was on duty that night, would they would type it. And uh, it ended up in the paper and I would get so much aligned for that. So I started like that. And then I was doing a little bit of photography with my father as well. I used to go to things and I suppose I would take pictures myself and send them in on a chance, a chance sending them in. And sometimes they would end up on the Cork Weekly Examiner. So it kind of developed that way and doing bits and pieces every now and again. And uh, so I planned to go into journalism and uh, was doing a shorthand and typing course when a job came up in the examiner. I was only about six weeks into the course. The job came up in the dark room and uh, I got the job. And I remember Donald Crosby and uh, God rest his soul. And they were a great family, the Crosbys. Donald said to me, well, Dennis, you're going to be on a six month trial. And I haven't heard back to this day. (laughs) Make 47 years later, I'm still waiting. I haven't heard a word back. (laughs) <laughs> so I suppose I was I was doing you were on trial for 47 years so at that <laughs> so I suppose I was doing a bit of photography before I started and then when I was in I was working in the dark room for the bones of a year and a half to two years thinking I'd be in the dark room for much longer before I got an opportunity but at weekends when I was in the dark room I would go home to Skibbereen I sometimes I I hitched a lift I thumbed thumbed down to Skibbereen or other times I got the bus and during those weekends, I would maybe take some photographs, maybe a lovely sunset or nature picture or wildlife or whatever. And when I come back up, then if if Frank Sanquist, the editor, was on on a Sunday night and I happened to be working the night shift on the Sunday, he'd often say to me, Dennis, did you get any nice photograph over the weekend? And I'd say, well, actually, sometimes I would say, Frank, I did. I got a lovely, a lovely sunset or a lovely view of Loch Ine. He said, do a print and let me have a look at it. And... Uh, Oftentimes they ended up as a half page on the, on the examiner the following day or in the weekly examiner a few days later. So I kind of eased myself into it that way before I went out on the road. Yeah, it's great. as you said, it's great to, to have that kind of a start yes, and, and, yes. and to learn from the from, from the bottom up. Yes, yes. No, obviously, and stuff down in the south, in particular, Dennis, within the the examiner's catchment area, what have you? Certainly, initially back in in those days, 
there was always big stories that would have been around. And one of the major stories there in the 80s, I think, was the Air India crash. And you you did some work around that. I did. I did. I did indeed. Yeah, that was a that was a terrible tragedy at the time. It, it really Tell was. Tell us a bit about it itself, the story. It was a plane that came down, wasn't it, just off Cork? That's right. It was uh, the plane blew up off the West Cork coast. Yeah, it did. It did indeed. It was flying... Um, Flying past Ireland, and the the bomb went off, and it and it exploded off the Irish coast. That's right. And a lot of the of the debris and the bodies were all brought ashore. Uh, yeah, yeah. Many of the bodies were found and brought uh, and brought ashore, and debris as well. Yeah, the navy were navy was out there searching for many days, many days. Yes, indeed, there were some tragic and upsetting scenes at that time. They sure were. And I think you some photographs in particular. And it was very tragic, obviously, but it's it sort of brought home the tragedy of it, as as only photographs can in some instances. I think you'd photograph wherever the bodies were laying out at one stage. Yeah, they were. I had a I had a photograph of some of the bodies in the in a temporary morgue set up in the in Cork Regional Hospital. I had indeed. I mean, earlier on that day, I suppose I had actually been working at um, two hurling games in Thurles. That's where I was that day, and. Uh, I was travelling with Jim, uh, with Jim O'Sullivan and I travelled together and uh, we'd arrived in Thurles, turned on the, the new, the RT Radio 1 News and at 11 o'clock and the news came on that there was a, a plane after after going down off the um, the, Cork, the Cork coast. And so, I mean, I worked at the games that day, I came back and when I got back to Cork, I was hardly able to get into the dark room to process my, my pictures from the match because there were so many international photographers in there who had arrived to cover that um, awful tragedy uh, of their India. So I eventually got to process my pictures and later on that evening I was asked would I would I go out, there was a press conference in, in the regional, would, would I go out and uh, see if I get some photographs there that might relate to um, to the fact that it was, you know, it was Cork was was where where all this was happening. What would strike as well, I suppose, what people often think, you know, about different lines of work, how people approach things, but something like that, and I'm sure there's been other occasions as well, a very harrowing scene. And it's, uh, I, I suppose, in some ways, harrowing that people would nearly turn away from it. But because of your profession, because of your craft, you have to kind of remove yourself from that in those instances. You're you're taking the photographs. Would that be right? Yeah, you'd you'd be right there. Yeah, you obviously have personal feelings and uh, and emotional about the whole thing. But you have to remove yourself in some ways, I suppose, from from it and just try and try and do your job as try and do your job as well. And on the, I mean, on that night when I went to the regional hospital, there was obviously a lot of international media there. There were camera ph- photographers, reporters, TV crews. And uh, I think some of the international photographers f- thought that they would be allowed to take a photograph of of um, the remains in, um, you know, a general photograph, as I suppose they had done at other international events, which I wouldn't have experienced. And but they weren't allowed, and uh, so I just I took what I what I could at the at the press conference, and then I moved around, and I was looking looking down. I was trying to figure out where where all the where the remains were and uh, I found the temporary morgue where they were and I could see the door but uh, didn't get didn't get any further than that obviously and so I went around the back of the building and uh, had a had a look and I could see now there were 
there were quite thick net curtains hanging in the window so I could see the remains inside but it was too dark to actually get a photograph you couldn't get a photograph with the net curtains you could just barely get a view in so I wasn't sure what I was doing to be honest what to do I was waiting around for quite some time I had my car parked on the ground so I decided I'd take the car out and I parked down the road and I walked back walked back in a side entrance and went back to the window and I was waiting and watching and waiting for a while I suppose I could see there was activity in the room and they were trying to identify the remains and uh, that was a very difficult task no doubt for all the people involved that time and eventually somebody came down and they they opened the window up high way up over my head they opened the window and uh, I thought I'd been seen so I went around the corner but nobody had come out to me or anything so I went back around again and I saw the window had been opened and the the, um, the curtain started to blow just a little with the, the, the slight breeze that was coming in the window up higher and uh, so I managed to get a few frames I just it was only an instant really it was only a couple of seconds I think I got seven frames the curtain went in just past the windowsill and I had about a two inch gap between the curtain and the windowsill so the 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 frame in the the actual photograph the top third of the photograph is the net curtain the bottom of the net curtain and the lower part of it is the windowsill and then I managed to get the picture of the remains in between that so I I I got seven frames I think three or four of them were 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 usable but you know I managed to get that but at the same time I was probably on a manual exposure so it was film in those days so I didn't really know exactly what I had got to be honest Mick and the story was so huge. I mean, it, it, it was a terrorist bomb it was. that had blown up the plane and everybody aboard had died, that there, there was international interest, understandably, in it. And I think your photograph, did it go to Life magazine as well? It did, it did, yeah, it did. It went to Life magazine, uh, called me from on the Monday, but it, it happened on the Sunday. And on the Monday afternoon, was it, I got a, happened to be in the office and I got a call from a lady from <clears throat> New York, I think, called and was looking to speak to the photographer who took the picture. And I happened just I so happened to be there, and she was wondering if it was possible to get an original copy of the photograph. Now, at, at that stage earlier in the day, obviously the examiner and the Echo had used it that morning. And when I came in early seven o'clock that that Monday morning. And the lads in the wire room, the wire room technicians and the wire room operators said that the picture had been wired to so many newspapers that there was an incredible interest in it. And you'd wonder in those days, Mick, how the newspapers even heard so much about it, heard about the photograph. It's different nowadays when you have such modern technology with yeah. instant. But they did. They did somehow. And uh, the lady from New York said that they want to get an original copy. And I think they were going to to hold, hold their, their, they were ready to go to print with, with uh, Life magazine, but they, they held on if they could get a copy of the photograph. So I had to, it wasn't my call. I had to get permission because, I, I mean, I was working for the examiner, so I had to get permission from management upstairs. So I, they gave the go-ahead. So I did a, a large print. They wanted as large a print as possible. Did a large print. I put it into an envelope, well, a, a package, but I, it was well protected. I had a lot of um, cardboard around the print to protect it. So I put it into a taxi at the door, the taxi took it to Cork Airport, they flew it to London and it was flown to New York. Just a print, just an envelope with the print. And <laughs> she called me the following day and that lady did and said that they got it and thank you very much and that they were going to use it 
across the two pages of Life magazine and that they were going to give me a credit and the Cork Examiner and that uh, and that, that they were grateful that she said it was the it was the biggest news story in the world at the time I guess really sadly mm. but um, so so that that was that that was that as such and it's fascinating all right you're talking put the taxi to the oh, yes. airport so yes, younger yes. people would have no concept of this at all the notion <laughs> in terms of how something goes around the world you press a button now and bang it's gone yeah it is it right is. around the world in a fraction of a second but I think I wonder about that then is because such a sensitive scenario and obviously also it was illustrative of the horrendous tragedy that had happened. Was there any negative vibes, any suggestion that it was intruding on a scenario or anything like that? Or would that have arisen at all? Now, I presume in terms of you being the photographer, your first instance is get the picture and other people can worry about that. But was there any um, criticism in that respect? I've no doubt there was, Mick. It was, I mean... Being what it was, it was uh, it was it wasn't the easiest photograph to look at. You know, it was very difficult. It must have been very difficult for the families as well if they if they saw it. You know, all the the relatives because the relatives were arriving from Canada and from India for over the next over the next few days or the next week, really. So it can't have, it can't have been easy for them. No, no, of course not. And I'm sure it wasn't it wasn't an easy decision either. You know, in the office that night to use the picture as well in the first place. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't, and for me either. But I mean, as you, as you say, it was. I suppose it was the job at the time and. Uh, and I know they had. There was a photograph already on the on our, on our wire system of uh, of a, a body of one, one some somebody being airlifted from the scene. You know, somebody's remains being airlifted from the scene. So they did have that photograph already. So it was it was difficult. It was difficult, and I, I know I felt so so sorry for all those people afterwards. You know, there was no. No intent to upset anyone, but I've no doubt it must, oh, have, yeah. it must have caused some distress. It, 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 it would have, it would have. And I'm sure some people in the regional hospital weren't too happy with me either, I, I would say. Yeah, and, and out of curiosity, in terms of a scenario like that, was there, was there any repercussions for you from the regional hospital in terms of access or anything afterwards, or is that just something that people move on? There wasn't, no. They, no, yeah, I don't. I on. probably didn't yeah. go there for a while afterwards, I would probably <laughs> yeah, imagine. Yeah, I can but well no, imagine. No, there wasn't. There wasn't, no. I mean, I, I, I know there were vibes and I felt that I knew people weren't, weren't, some people weren't happy about it and they were, I suppose they were probably looking into how did I manage to get it and, and all that, you yeah. know. And uh, so, uh, yeah. That's the eternal um, dilemma in journalism all the time. You know, as you say, your job is to make a decision, but th- th- there is that thing. It is illustrative. It does bring home the horror of what has been perpetrated. It does, and I suppose it, it did. It did show show the, the show the enormity of of what happened. Really, it did. Yeah. It definitely brought it home. And I suppose it, I remember they had an was it. Was it the twenty? What we're nine? That was nineteen twenty third of June, nineteen eighty five. Was it um, the 30th, thirty years? 30, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Was that the third? They had an. There was an anniversary. Was it the twenty fifth? I think that the, ambas- right. the ambassadors were at it, and actually, and actually, uh, they asked, "Would I? Would I come along to it?" Which was actually, you know, I. It was in, an ease to my mind, really, that they the, the Cork University Hospital, as it was, ah, saying, yeah. asked me would I would I like to attend, which you know was was amazing. Really, I didn't expect that, and it was very kind of them and gracious of them. And so I I, I, I attended. I attended. Yeah, yeah. 
you were also uh, displaced from from Cork, so to speak. You, you you were over at the release of the Birmingham Six. That would have been in nineteen ninety one. Somebody told me you had a story there about a seven foot ladder you used because you got a great shot that day as well. I have to say, it was it really brought home the, uh, the, the, just the the, um, the emotions of the men who were there. Your shot in their face it was really uh, really powerful. Tell us what was behind that. Uh, I was. Well, I suppose it had been going on all week. This was coming up and it looked like they were going to be released. I can't remember the exact details, but I was sent over on Wednesday, I think. I sent, they were due to be released on the Friday, if memory serves me right. I could be wrong now, but I think it was. I was sent over two days before they were due to be released. Got into London and uh, went, into, went, to the, went to my hotel. I think the hotel was probably a late booking because it was quite a kind of a fancy <laughs> fancy hotel I was staying in not that I spent much time there but uh, got to the hotel checked in went in to Fleet Street and off then the side street up to the Old Bailey and uh, I couldn't believe it there were so many photographers and they were corralled in there were barriers around and they were corralled into a kind of a semicircle up the street from the Old Bailey and uh, they were photographers standing on the ground there were photographers on steps there were photographers on higher steps there were photographers on ladders step ladders and I said oh my goodness how am I going to get a picture here I knew I couldn't get to the front because I was one of the later ones to arrive so I had I in around the back and sure I could see nothing because there were so many photographers there there were dozens of photographers could see nothing so I had to get a ladder so I headed off searching for a ladder and eventually I found a, a place near the hotel I was staying where I managed to purchase a seven foot ladder Went back to the hotel with the ladder. I knew I wouldn't have a hope of getting photographs without the ladder. Went back to the hotel with the ladder and the, I think the porter probably thought I was working there. I remember he was wearing top hat and tails and uh, quite, a, quite a fancy hotel and he thought I was working there. So I just took the ladder up to the room following morning then came back down, out with the ladder and I was trying to figure out how was I going to get the ladder into the Old Bailey. And so the only way we could do it was a, a taxi, one of the larger taxis in London, and I had the ladder out the front left window and out the back right window, and I was sitting in the back seat holding it. And he agreed to take me. He was probably saying, who's this Irish fella going, going around with a seven-foot ladder? But anyway, he took me in, put my ladder in at the back of the photographers, and so I had my view, and I was above, I was up at the back. And then another photographer arrived from I think was it the Sunday World later in the day and he had to do he had to do the same thing so that day was the day before they were due to be released and a lot of we we all sort of were getting our lunch and sandwiches and just staying nearby I hung around I got a sandwich and I, I was getting a sandwich I hung around I heard a lot of shouting so I went out, I ran out and I went up the ladder and I said, my goodness, what's going on? I could see people, a lot of commotion outside the old Bailey and I could see people running out. So I jumped down and I got, got the camera, got the camera, went back up the ladder with the long lens, camera with the long lens. And uh, just a couple of minutes later, the Birmingham Six came running out. It was unbelievable. Uh, if memory serves me right, I think they weren't due to come out until the following day. They came out a day early. I think I could be I could be wrong, or maybe they were to come yeah. out later in the day, later that day, but I think they weren't expected out until the following day. So they came running out, and I had a picture of five of them kind of embracing outside the door. I think Jerry Conlon, I think, well, came out first. I can't remember exactly now, and went to the crowd because there were hundreds of people across the street shouting and cheering and waving, you know, waiting for them, waiting for them to come out. 
So, and then the, the six of them came up. They came up and stood in front of, of all the, the photographers. So we got some very strong pictures on that day. Yeah, yeah, incredible. And of course, it then, was, I, yeah, it was, it, it was quite an emotional packed day. It was, really was. And so I was supposed to process in Press Association on Fleet Street because Ted Crosby, uh, God rest his soul, was involved with Press Association. And uh, so I had got permission to process there and contacted contacted PA and they were snowed under with people because of this, because the whole thing happened so suddenly with, with the release and uh, and so much earlier than expected. And they said that it would be later in the day or the evening before they'd be able to process my my films and print the photographs. So I rang the office, went to a payphone, I rang the office and I said, I think it was Dermot Russell was in the desk and I said, Dermot, the Birmingham 6 are out, I have photographs, uh, PA won't be able to, were so busy that they wouldn't be able to help me out for a few hours. Should I go back to Cork or what will I do? And he said, do that, Dennis. He said, go to Heathrow, I'll, I'll organise the flight the plane flight will be ready for you when you get to Heathrow and come back with the films. So then I was standing on Fleet Street after speaking with Dermot and I had a seven-foot ladder. What was I going to do with a seven-foot ladder? <laughs> so I rang my wife's... My, my wife, Maeve, her sister, uh, Geraldine, lived in outside London. I rang her and I said, would, uh, would, you, be, would you use a seven-foot ladder? <laughs> and she said, we certainly would. No bother at all. So into a taxi again, the same way as I'd come in that morning, out the two windows, and I holding the ladder on the back, got to the hotel and uh, asked the porter, would he would he mind holding on to the ladder overnight for me and that my sister-in-law would collect in the morning? He said he would, so I remember I gave him a £10 note. <laughs> I, gave him ten, I gave him a tenner, £10, and uh, that was the ladder, and I made, me, made my way made my way back to um to Heathrow and oh back to Cork. So I, I asked her recently and she said that the uh, ladder is as far as she knows they still have the ladder. <laughs> <laughs> Probably won't need to use it again, hopefully in London. Great but... beginnings for it, yeah. <laughs> to know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. No, Hollywood came to Cork at one stage, Dennis, in the guise of one of the all-time great actors, Marlon Brando. That's right. You were dispatched. Was it Nice Cork? He was. You were dispatched down there to yeah. uh, to see if he if 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 you could get a photograph of him. That's right, East Cork. They were filming. He was one of the stars of the film Divine Rapture. I think wasn't that the name? But I think so. Divine Rapture. Yeah, it ended up a disaster. It I did, think it did never. It never. They never finished, which yeah. is an awful shame. I think there, it, there was other Hollywood actors in that too. There I were. Think, no, De- there was Deborah a, Winger was in it, and Johnny Depp. That's, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I, I yeah. remember photographing them. We we were given limited access in on the street in Bally Cotton. At, you know, every now and again, so there was limited access. I remember taking photographs of 
Deborah Winger and Johnny Depp walking along the street, and you know it was a, it was a fantastic setup with all the all the gear set up on the on the street in Ballycotton. And but there was a there was an issue that arose then, and uh, they they didn't want any more photographs taken. So Marilyn Brando was back in the house he was staying in, and uh, they were kind of no more. Didn't want any more photographs over whatever happened. So I was at the gate of the house he was staying in, outside the gate, with with a reporter. But we had heard that Michael D. Higgins, now President President Higgins, was going to visit Marilyn Brando. He was Minister for the Arts at the he, time. He was me. Minister for Arts and possibly Culture in the Gales, because I can't remember what that kind of comes to mind. Right. Minister for Arts, and he was coming to meet Marilyn Brando, I suppose to welcome him and just to chat with him. And obviously they were promoting film, filming in Ireland as well at the time. And it's which has taken off and developed so much so in a lot of ways now. And uh, we waited outside the gate and the car arrived with with Michael D. Higgins and uh, we put in a request. You know, would it be possible to go and get photographs of him with Marilyn Brando? And he said he'd inquire. And uh, the word came back a while later that they were going to allow myself and the reporter in to to take to meet them, to get a few words and to take the photographs. So we... We were allowed in, and uh, there was a beautiful blazing fire inside in the room. And Marilyn Brando and and President Higgins were sitting in front of it, chatting. And we sat down, and we had a cup of afternoon tea and some cake with the two, with the two of them. <laughs> and unfortunately, there were no phones like there are nowadays. In those days, that I could have taken a few selfies of myself or the reporter <laughs> with the two of them, or with Marilyn Brando or anything. But uh, it was just, it was. I suppose it's a lovely memory. He, they were chatting away. I took photographs of them chatting casually, and then we did a few post photographs. And I had a couple of lovely close-up studies of Marilyn Brando as well, smiling at me. And it was lovely. It was lovely. All I have is memories of it now. But anyway, they're lovely to have. How was Brando? He was fine. He was great. Great. Quite chatty. He chat, chat, chatted away. Not so much to us. It was more to to, to President Higgins. But uh, no, he was he was very in, very interesting. And you know, he chatted about different things and how he was delighted to be in County Cork and the beautiful scenery and all that, I would imagine. So, you know, it, it was lovely. No, we weren't there for very long because obviously they were having an official chat, I guess. So we were in there for a little while, but not, not that long. And we, we left then. It's a great, um, from, from the outside, Dennis, it's a great way to earn a living. You're, you're, you're there <laughs> and, and, and uh, doing what you love and capturing all these photographs. You enjoyed it as a career. Oh yeah! Oh God! Yes, absolutely! Yeah, I did, no doubt, no doubt. It yeah, it was an it was an in, an incredible career, really. It, it really was. I mean, I suppose as I say it was born, kind of born into it, but it was an incredible career. There's no doubt about it. I got to see, meet so many, got to see, meet so many ordinary, decent people is the main main thing, really. And then I also got to meet a lot of you know personalities and VIPs. Got to a lot of big events. And uh, it was just incredible. I travelled travelled a bit as well. I mean, I was at the Pope's funeral in Rome. I, well, I covered the Pope's visit when he was in Ireland, Pope John Paul II, and, and that was that was in nineteen seventy nine. Because Eddie O'Hare, the photographer, and Billy Higgins, who was the wire royal room technician and wire room operator at the time, we were in Dublin Airport for his arrival. Eddie. Eddie and Richard Mills, another photographer, and I, we were, we were flown up to Dublin the night before the Pope arrived. We, I think we stayed in Wynn's Hotel, and the following morning then we made our way to Eddie and I. And the three of us actually went to Dublin Airport. Richard was doing colour photographs, and the reason we had flown up is that Richard 
it was a, they were doing a special publication of the examiner on a Sunday, which was wasn't <laughs> unheard of in those days. So they did a special publication. Richard was taking colour transparencies just at the Pope arriving, coming down the steps onto the ground and a couple of quick shots of meeting people. Richard left and flew back on the, on the plane that we'd come up on so that he could get the trans- colour transparencies back. And I was in the on the ground then taking photographs or in a, in a stand taking photographs of the Pope. I mean, we were so close to him, really. I mean, I, I, I took photographs on a standard lens, a 50 mil lens, 50 millimeter lens. So he was only maybe 10, 12 feet away from us, looking over at us and waving and everything. So I would take a couple of rolls of film and then I would jump down, go over to the edge of the car park, put the films into a bucket. Eddie was above. Eddie would pull the, had a rope attached to the bucket. Eddie pulled the rope up pull pull the rope and pull the bucket up, got the films and we had a van set up in the car park in Dublin Airport and Eddie developed the films in the blacked out van and you know it was a windows were blacked out so that it was a dark converted into a temporary mm. dark room. Eddie developed the films and printed the pictures and Billy Billy wore the pictures and I went, I continued taking more photographs then. Brilliant. One other event someone mentioned to me, I think it was Ireland when they won the Grand Slam in Wales in 2009. That's right, the Millennium Stadium, yes. The Millennium Stadium. That was the first Grand Slam it won in, I don't know, since the 40s. But it was, yes. You, somebody said you, you you had a sense, and that was one with a last-minute drop goal by Ronan O'Gara. Yes, that's right, that's right. You Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I suppose I would have known Ronan down over the years, maybe, you know, meeting him at various things in Cork, and but known as, you know, his parents as well, and... Uh, Ron was always great, great guy. I, I even took photographs of him <laughs> the day he graduated in UCC. His father was his father was uh, in UCC, and uh, I remember bringing a, a rugby ball up there that day and asked, and the chance that they might pass a ball between them on the uh, in the quad in UCC for a photograph, and they agreed. They did it, so that made a good picture that day. So I would have known Ron, and then on the day of the game, which was an incredible occasion, it really it really was. The game was so tight with the scoreline. I think they were. It was. It was neck and neck, and you're right, right towards the end of the game. And I just had this sense that Ronan was going to kick a drop goal. Just had that feeling from I suppose seeing him playing other games and what following his career. And I watched. I I concentrated my focus on Ronan for maybe five, probably ten minutes. I was sitting at the corner flag, and I just had him in my viewfinder the whole time. And because I had, I got lots of pictures of the game, so I figured if he was going to get a drop goal, and it could win the game, so I watched him and watched him, and the ball came to him. I could see he was in the right spot, and he kicked the drop goal. So I had a picture of him kicking the ball. I could see the ball going up in the air, and the three Welsh players were in front of me then with their backs to me, and Ronan was facing me, and he put the ball over. And so I had pictures of him then with a the hand up in the air and turning around celebrating as well. So yeah, I just I just figured he was go- that was going to happen, and and thank God for me and for Ronan and for Ireland, it did. <laughs> <laughs> you had the right instinct. You 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 ah, were the game, as they say. That was a great day it, with the celebrations it, it, afterwards and everything. It was just wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, in that respect. Tell me, Dennis, the nature of technology, the nature of photography, everything has gone on. Is is the golden age past for press photography? It's definitely changed, Mick, so much. It has. There's no doubt about it. It has. I mean, the, the phones now have changed everything, really, the, the, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, we went from black and white in those days where you wouldn't see, you never knew what you had until you processed the film and looked at the negatives and did the prints then and see exactly what you had. 
now everything is it went in from color to color transparency it's onto color film and then to digital and it's everything is so instant now as you said earlier on you can have a picture sent around the world in in seconds and it has changed so much it's got more difficult for press photographers all right no doubt to uh, to try and, and get and get the shots because oftentimes if you're at something and you have to stand in a particular position you could have people in front of you who have phones up and you're trying to, yeah. you can't get the shot with the phones or whatever. Like, I mean, oftentimes I would go to, over the years, go to events and concerts, maybe school concerts or concerts wherever, and sit at the front, in, oftentimes on, sitting on the, on the floor, just getting nice pictures. But in the recent years, people would say, oh, we can't get a picture on our phone, you're in the way, and this sort of thing. So invariably yeah. what I was to, to do then in recent years, I would actually go to the rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> so that right. I wouldn't have any issue with phones. I go to the re- address rehearsal maybe the day before and get my pictures there. So it has changed considerably, there's no doubt. It has. I think it's an undervalued and understated uh, skill and craft. Yes, yes. Uh, and long may it last. And Dennis, long may your retirement last. And uh, I hope you've time to um, get out and, and pursue your passion without the same kind of pressures that will be there in a work scenario long into the future. Thanks, Mick, I suppose, really. Just to, before I finish up, I, it, you know, I, I, I came from a long line of fantastic photographers down through the years. Um, initially with Paddy Barker and Tommy Barker's grandfather, Thomas Barker, would have taken photographs in the Titanic as it when it visited, you know, when it was stopped in Cork on its uh, on its on its voyage, at the start of its voyage, and then down through the years, all my all my other colleagues, and I suppose without the support of my wife and family, because it is, you know, you're away a lot with that job. You you could be gone for a day, or you could be gone for days, and without my wife, may have support and and all that, you know, and the children, I would never have, I'd manage it really because the demands, they were great demands, but they were fantastic, enjoyable days. And, you know, I wouldn't think, think, think twice about doing it again, really. It was wonderful and it was a great company to work for, the Examiner and the Echo. So, so anyway, thank you, Mick. Lovely. Dennis, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Mick. Uh, thank you. As always, I want to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. We'll talk to you again soon. Take it easy. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.